Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. You, you sound cheery. I am cheery. Despite our news. Bronze. <laughs> but bronze, bronze isn't so bad. Bronze is good. In fact, you won two bronzes. Two bronzes equal a silver in my book. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're talking, of course, about the British Podcast Awards. Mm. So Jeff won bronze in Best New Podcast for Adrift. Mm-hmm. And we won bronze in Best Current Affairs Podcast. So I beat us, technically. You beat us, yes. That's one way of putting it. And we came seventh in Listener's Choice. Now, I think seventh in Listener's Choice is actually pretty good, given who we're up against. Commode and Mayo, Flintoff and Savage. You know, some sort of really kind of, you know, very, very sort of well-known, long-running podcast. Can I just say you're taking this very well? I thought maybe I'd have to you'd be... Throw, I'd throw my toys out of the pram. Well, I, th- I thought so. I thought maybe you'd take to your bed and I'd have look, to come bronze. and say, Ed, it's not so bad. Bronze. Steve Redgrave won a bronze at the Olympics. Kelly Holmes won a bronze at the Olympics. Michael Phelps won a bronze at the Olympics. I mean, they also won golds as well. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, you know, we're in good company. Yeah. Are you yeah. saying that we should enter the Olympics? What would be the um, discipline? I don't know. I mean, this is, I take it there's not a podcasting. I don't, I'm not that uh, I mean, much that, of an but, Olympics no, fan. No, that's but... a good point. We should be campaigning for that. So to have podcasting included in the Olympics. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Well, I think that's a good idea. And why not? I'm just going to put this out there. Yeah. Why not a Nobel Prize for podcasting? I think that will be that will bring the Nobel into the 21st century. Yes, it's better than giving the Nobel Prize to Donald Trump. Yes, um, which they haven't done, but which Donald Trump seems to want to happen. <laughs> so that's better than the Olympics. You think? Uh, why not both? Well, the campaign starts here. I mean, basically, that's what happens when you lose. You've got to, you know, the campaign begins. It's a permanent campaign. So we're campaigning, you know, we, we sort of, you know, dust ourselves down, mm-hmm. get back up and, and, and start the campaign again. You're, you're, you're very good at this. It's almost I like am. you've got some experience okay, exactly. in it. Yeah. Perhaps. All that being said, and despite the fact that we didn't win the listeners' choice, we're still going to be drawing somebody out of the hat. If you remember, we asked you to send in a screenshot if you voted for us in the Listener Choice Award. And... Even though we didn't win, I don't know if this now counts as a booby prize, we're going to be picking somebody out to come and spend time with us during the recording of a future episode of Reasons to be Cheerful. 
So drawing out the, the person who's going to be joining us, that's the main bit of business we've got to get to today. But what else will we be doing on the podcast? Well, I think we're going to be talking about something which really will appeal to you because it's about the generational divide and in a way about the way that the younger generation, people like you, mm-hmm. have been so hard done by by you know the older generation, the people, people like, like me. You, yes. And I think so. this will really speak to you. And, and yeah. we're talking about a very important report which has come out from the Resolution Foundation. It's the Intergenerational Commission. It's the culmination of two years of work about how do we get a better deal for young people uh, in our society. And they've got a whole stack of proposals in there. We're going to be talking to David Willits, the executive chair of the Resolution Foundation, one of the brains behind the um, report. And uh, it's a great conversation that we're going to have with him. And as well as that, we've got a pair of excellent comedians coming on to pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Sisters, Flo and Joan, you may have seen them. Uh, they were on a, an insurance advert recently singing little songs, which divided people. I thought they were, divided they, opinion, they were great, but they did have death threats. Mm. What's wrong with people, really? I don't know. Uh, but they're they're very funny and they're more gonna... controversial than Brexit. Their yes, insurance advert. Yeah. Um, so, reason to be cheerful. Then, what's yours? So, um, I am an armchair sports fan, as you know, and I- I'm off to the cricket at the end of this week. Um, I'm going to Headingley for my son Daniel's ninth birthday. It's actually on his birthday to watch England versus Pakistan. Headingley is the Yorkshire cricket ground. It's the place that I saw my first ever. A test match, my first ever cricket match, I think, about the age of uh, seven, when Jeff Boycott, you've heard of him, mm-hmm. um, uh, got his 100th 100 in first-class cricket. And it was the first day I'd ever been to a cricket match, and I got to see his 100th 100. I once pitched a documentary idea called Jeff Boycott's where I would just boycott a different thing every week. And to be honest, cool. to be honest... I, t- I was quite slow on the uptake, <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. I th- it started with the title and then the idea wasn't ever really fleshed out any further than that. I quite like that idea. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but, but you know, Daniel and Sam are both into baseball because of our trip to uh, see the baseball uh, in America, but they're also into cricket and we're going to have a great day out. What's yours? My reason to be cheerful is... The the cafe just over the road from where we record the podcast, it's closed for a major refurbishment. That's not cheerful. Well, it's it's cheerful for two reasons. One, one is I'm really trying to watch what I eat at the moment uh, on, on account of um, being nudging up against uh, morbidly obese. Um, That's not so, true. Come so, on. You're being hard on yourself. I know, but I've put on so much. It's, it's since I've started knocking around with you, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Honestly, in the time since we started talking about doing this podcast, I've put on two and a half stone. Are you serious? Yes. No. Yeah, honestly, I went to the doctors the other it's week for a, a medical, and he well, said, and he said it's an Ed Miliband problem. He said, he said that that guy's bad for you. He's a wrong gun. Stay away from him. Um, so, so anyway, so it's good that for a little while, for two or three weeks, while it's closed, I won't be able to stock up on cookies. Um, we have these miso and white chocolate cookies, but we're good. we're moving to fruit, I think. So while it's closed, we're going to move to fruit and well, see I think how that permanent goes. move to fruit. And then maybe. I'm just excited to see what it'll be like when it reopens. What yeah. are they going to do there? Will they install an ice bar or a vape lounge? I don't know. I don't know what their plans are. Who knows? So that's my reason to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're on a trip out. We've come to the Resolution Foundation in the heart of Westminster. 
Jeff's got up at an unusually early hour, mm-hmm. um, eight took o'clock. A, took a road trip. Uh, we've taken a road trip to be here, and we're delighted to be here with uh, David Willits, Lord David Willits, Executive Chair of the Resolution Foundation, former Cabinet Minister, the man um, who uh, was known as Two Brains. I'm sorry to, to – I know that's about the millionth time someone said that to you. I was actually saying to Jeff in the car on the way here, only in Britain could Two Brains be a double-edged statement. <laughs> yes. In most countries, that would be a, an unalloyed compliment. I know, yes, it's rather hung around my neck, that. It doesn't do me any good at I all. Think it's, no, I, think, I, I think it's a very – I think it should be a badge of honour um, for you. Now, look, you've produced this incredibly important report, in which we're very keen to talk about, called The New Generational Contract. It's the final report of the Intergenerational Commission of the Resolution Foundation. You're very much the, the brains behind it. The two brains. The two it. brains behind it. Just to, to sort of start off with, you, you, and this is a theme that you've talked about before in a book called The Pinch uh, in 2010. You, your starting point is that young people have been, if you like, betrayed by older generations. And, and I think a you know, few people are going to disagree with that. But just from the horse's mouth, how would you describe the problem The problem is if you look at a whole group of measures of living standards, younger people are not having the same kind of opportunities that previous generations have had. And we show in the report, and I showed in my book, uh, it's wages, where people now aged 30, their wages are no higher than they would have been 10 or 15 years ago. It's, of course, getting started on the housing ladder, where it's so much tougher for the younger generation than it was for generations before them. It's true of pensions, where there used to be generous company pension schemes, and those have closed to new members. Uh, it's also even true of the welfare state, where they're unlikely to get out as much as they're likely to have to put in to fund it. So put it all together... And it looks like the young generation are getting a raw deal compared with the uh, opportunities that particularly the baby boomers enjoyed. And by and large, across the country, people recognize that. If you look at the polling, people say, first, we expect younger generations to be better off. And second, our country is failing to deliver that promise. When you say betrayed by the older generation, though, it it sounds like it's premeditated is is this sort of like just a bunch of different things that have happened without very much thought being given to the overall effect well that's a key question and sometimes i'm accused of kind of promoting generational warfare by saying it's a deliberate plot and i don't think that the old generational traitor yeah and and i and let's be clear we all have to make these declarations now i'm a baby boomer myself i was born in 1956 and and the baby boom was about the 20 years after the war 45 to 65 so I don't think it was a deliberate plot to do down the younger generation, but I don't think it's just a set of accidents. And in fact, the I think one reason why it's happened is because the baby boomer generation was so big and the generations after them have been smaller. Now, the conventional view amongst the demographers was faced with a choice between being born in a big cohort or a small cohort. The obvious thing to do was choose to be born in a small cohort. Less competition, less competition in the housing market, less competition in jobs. The the expectation was that would work to your advantage. But it looks like it's worked to people's disadvantage. And my core argument in the pinch is that in a modern liberal democracy, if you're a big generation, first of all, you have more market power. That's why they're still making minis and the Rolling Stones are back on tour. And it's also you have more voting power. You are, you are where the votes lie, so policies are aimed at your interests. My argument is it looks as if in the modern world it might be that being a big generation is a better deal than being a small generation. But you're not advocating a cull. <laughs> no, I do. I would advocate younger people 
voting more. The worst advice they ever had was Russell Brand saying, don't vote. Right. That was terrible advice. I tried to do something about that, but it didn't go, <laughs> didn't go so well. Um, let, let me put a sort of alternative point of view to you, which may be more sort of challenging in a way, which is that actually this is about the evolution of British capitalism into something much more nasty, much more unequal. You know, if you think about insecurity in the labor market, it's because unions are weaker. If you think about pensions, it's because employers have bailed out. If you think about the housing market, it's because we're a country that caters mainly to the to the richest in our society. I mean, isn't this quite deeply challenging of a lot of the things that you've believed? I, I think it's genuinely cross-cutting for political parties. I don't think it fits into the boundaries of conventional politics. Now, you're right. In some areas, like the labour market, you could argue that the long-run weakening of labour relative to capital is one reason why wages aren't doing so well. And in fact, here out of this foundation, there's work going on to try to harness digital technologies to make it easier for people in the gig economy to organise. But for me as a Conservative, in other areas, you could have a very different political narrative, I would say. Part of the problem with housing is quite simply, we haven't been building enough houses, and that's often because of planning constraints and regulations getting in the way of builders. On pensions... And governments not building social housing. But you're absolutely right, that's also a fair point, governments not building council housing. On pensions, uh, there has been a shift of risk to young people. I would argue it's actually because successive governments, different political parties, regulated company pensions so rigorously to make the pension promise to people in those company schemes gold-plated and generous. But as a result, companies have opted out from ever making that promise in the future. It turned into a once-off special offer, I would say, because of excessive regulation. So I don't think it really fits into a neat left-right division. And now, look, what's important about your report is not just the analysis, but that you're actually coming up with a comprehensive plan to actually do something about the problem. And I think that's what's very admirable about it. It'd be great to go through some of the proposals. The, 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 the first and, in a way, most um, headline-grabbing has been this idea of a £10,000 one-off amount given to young people at the age, I think, of 25 for yep. specific purposes. Yep. But, but as important is the way that's being funded, and that's through a change to inheritance tax. Perhaps you can say something about the change to inheritance tax uh, that you're proposing, and then a little bit about these, the £10,000. Yep. Yep. And we're proposing a big change to inheritance tax. We think inheritance tax has become a classic bad tax at a very high rate, 40%. But with a very low number of people actually paying it, you know, four percent or so of households, uh, and moreover, it it does. It, there are lots of ways around it, you know, agricultural land and things like that. At the moment, inheritance tax is a tax on the size of the estate that you leave, um, and it really kicks in seriously over about a million pounds, but at a rate of forty percent. And there are various exemptions. We're saying instead the tax should be on the amount that individuals receive during their lives. And individuals would have an allowance, say £125,000. And uh, if your parents and others give you amounts up to that, you are exempt. And then up to half a million pounds, you'd have a tax rate of uh, 20%. But instead of being a tax on big estates, it instead becomes a tax on receipt. So if you are leaving a million pounds and you divide it up between four people and each of whom get £250,000, there'd be a relatively small amount of tax to pay. And the more you spread it out, the less tax is paid by the recipient. And we think that's a much more progressive form of 
inheritance tax. It also has the great advantage, and again, this is a good example of how this is cross-party. For me as a Conservative, there was the great theme of the property-owning democracy, which my party has been talking about for decades. And we used to succeed in spreading home ownership, spreading share ownership. All that's going into reverse. Uh, the younger generation are much less likely to have any type of assets. And we think that kind of tax itself will encourage wider distribution of assets. And then you use the extra proceeds. And we think it might collect four or five billion pounds a year more than inheritance tax. You use the extra proceeds to fund a, uh, a payment of £10,000 to every young person, a citizen's inheritance. And for that, the money has to be used for one of several specific purposes. Either you can put it into a pension, or you can use it for education, or you can use it to set up a business. Uh, so those are the kind of things we want people to be able to do. And what's the thinking behind the £10,000? What's it trying to get at? It's trying to help young people who don't have assets of their own build up some kind of asset. And the figures are very striking of how, how few of them have got anything like £10,000. Sometimes I get on media interviews, people say, well, £10,000, that's nothing. You know, you, you sit in a Westminster studio and people say, well, what's £10,000 worth? Um, it would more than double the wealth of nearly two thirds of adults in their right. late 20s if they received it today. And we think that... At the moment, part of the problem for young people is they're facing this double whammy. They don't have assets, but they are being expected to take more and more risk, more and more risk in the labour market, more and more risk in terms of a personal pension. Um, and given they are taking more risk, one of the best ways of being able, insulated and able to take that risk is having a, a little bit of money that you can draw on. And you're getting around the sort of problem of um so-called money for nothing or what what will people do with the money by saying it's got to be for specific purposes that's obviously a decision that that you've that exactly. you've made exactly and we think that and there are some obvious and well-defined purposes like for the pension we've now got and i think this is one of the successes by the way we shouldn't assume policy is all terrible there was a cross-party consensus that mean, means that we've now got this nest program of auto enrollment in a pension and if you put your t extra ten thousand pounds straight into a nest pension then by the time you're you're retired it's probably going to be worth forty five thousand pounds so you could do that you could use it as a deposit for either for buying a house, and in many parts of the country it's a use, very useful contribution to deposit, or, let's face it, for young people today, you might be a deposit to help you rent a flat. That's equally a barrier. Uh, you could use it for education, and for that you could either use it to contribute to paying off your student debt, or you could use it to pay for an extra training course or, an, or a master's course or some adult learning that helps you move on and up in the jobs market. So... Contrary to some of the comment, which implied it was just completely sort of his, his cash to do with what you like, we had got some pretty well-defined purposes. Is it quite similar to the baby bond policy that the last Labour government introduced? Uh, it has. There have been various attempts under successive governments to do things like that. Of course, this comes in at uh, 25. We're, we're directly providing it for help at that age. And £10,000 is on a bigger scale. But yes, and I, I can remember the discussions that have been going on for... For 20 years, as soon as we started seeing these trends going in reverse as to what successive governments could do to boost asset ownership. And another key proposal in the report is to replace the council tax. And of course, you know, local government taxation from the poll tax to the council tax has had a very sort of problematic history in this country and previously rates. 
but you're proposing a more progressive property tax with surcharges on second and empty properties. Explain why this is important. This is another this is another tax on wealth, if you like. So you've got inheritance tax reform plus you know council tax or local tax reform. Yeah, and this was actually what for me personally was the one of the discoveries of sitting and chairing this commission. And we had fantastic expert commissioners, you know, Paul Johnson of the IFS, Karen Fairburn of the CBI, Francis O'Grady of the TUC. Um, and we did a, a, one of the things that came up was studying the way that the council tax was working. Uh, and I was actually in John Major's government when we brought in the council tax, and it was seen as a compromise between rates that was a pure property tax and uh, the community charge, the poll tax, which is pure per head. Which didn't go so well. <laughs> well, the council tax did go quite well. The council no, no, tax, I meant the poll tax. Yeah, the sorry. poll tax did not go so well. And you were in the Mrs. Thatcher's policy unit, but you were not responsible Thank for the poll tax. I think <laughs> I think we should put that on the record that you were that you were not yeah, the not, you were two brains, but not the two brains behind the poll it tax. Wasn't my particular area of no. policy, but but what um, for you know thirty years later, coming back to look at it, the council tax has over time shifted more and more to look like the old poll tax. It's less and less progressive for various reasons. And one reason is that the, as property prices have gone uh, up, there's been, the upper bands are completely inadequate. So you have, especially in London, the southeast, you've got properties really worth a hell of a lot of money, millions of pounds, that aren't paying any more uh, council tax than properties that are only now kind of mid-market. Um, and also, there's a particularly favourable regime for second homeowners, and although in the long run we just want to get more houses built to help with the housing crisis, it is striking how the in the housing market, to, to use the language of the economists, housing consumption is undertaxed. So affluent people are consuming a lot of housing. And we think if it's undertaxed relative to other forms of consumption, you know, it'd be great if at some point this might come on the market to be houses that are available for the younger generation. That's why we incidentally also propose a, a cut in stamp duty. We want to get more houses traded, more houses and flats out on the market for younger people to buy, rather than the baby boomers accumulating more property because it's a relatively tax-efficient way of owning assets. Now, now we talked a little bit about your you're, that you weren't responsible for the poll tax. Mm. I was responsible for something called the mansion tax <laughs> uh, in 2015, which mm. I personally thought I think was quite a good policy and wasn't nearly as uh, sort of problematic as some people claim it was. I mean, how does this compare to something like that? I mean, this would be this would require richer people to pay more on their properties. I mean, it's not called a mansion tax, but I mean, yeah. presumably, yeah, it is all it is in that kind of territory. I mean, we have. We have tried to take account of some of the biggest anxieties. And one of the anxieties, which you do hear from older people, is that they are asset-rich but income poor. Yep. How can they, yep. they be expected to pay, for, pay this out of their incomes? And we've dug into that. I mean, has, though I have to say it myself, this commission is a, is a serious piece of work. And we say, well, Very serious piece. I mean, I genuinely, and you had, you've published 22 reports yeah. before this report. Yeah. And we have tried to dig down into these type of issues. So you say, first of so what you say, well, local authorities ought to be able to take them, instead of collecting the money today, it should be a charge on the value of the property to pay uh, on death or when you move property. And we then, but why doesn't that happen? And you find that the Treasury rules at the moment won't allow local authorities to borrow on the security of future payments that are due. So you'd actually need to change the Treasury rules on local authority borrowing. And we think if you do that, and local authorities can take a charge, then pensioners could opt for not paying now, 
pay later out of their estates, uh, but local authorities would still have the flow of income they need to do things like, like fund social care. So, so we've talked about two proposals, one around inheritance tax, one around council tax. What are the other things that you think in this report will make a big difference? I would no- another very important proposal is around the funding of the NHS and social care. And look, we're coming to the 70th anniversary of the NHS in the summer of this year. And uh, there's obvious pressure to increase public spending on the NHS and for social care as well. And we say, hang on, look at the way this debate is drifting. It's drifting towards the assumption that it's higher taxes on the working age population. And it's a good example of the wider problem. It's not that one generation kind of deliberately conspires against another. We just don't think of the generational angle. But look, the NHS is above all used by older people. Fair enough. That's, that's, that's part of the social contract. Uh, and they have substantial assets. So is it really right to expect the working age population whose wages aren't going up, who really are having a quite a tough time, to bear all of the cost? Are the ways that we can reform the tax system so that older people who can afford it themselves make a contribution? And that's why we propose as a minimum that, for example, national insurance contributions should be paid by people in work, whatever their age. And at the moment, if you're over 65, you don't pay... Correct. If you're a pensioner, if you're receiving a pension, you don't pay national insurance contribution, which means that if there are two people um, side by side in the workplace and one is 67 and the other is 57, the one who's 67 for the same work and the same pay will be taking home more money. They won't be paying NI. So we say that's a start. You could also charge national insurance contributions at a lower rate and above a high threshold on the income they get from occupational pensions. So we think it's reasonable for the older generation, when they can afford it, to chip in to the meeting the higher costs of the NHS. When I think of a stereotypical Conservative voter, I am thinking of somebody older and affluent. Have you become a pariah in the Conservative Party for this (laughs) stuff? Well, I mean, obviously, I get all the emails and the letters from people with various things. They say, look, I had a tough life, Mr. Willis. Why are you expecting me to pay in after they've had a tough life? And I freely accept we're talking averages. We're, there are pensioners on low incomes who, by and large, by the way, would not pay any of the extras that we're talking about. Um, but there are those type of arguments. But look, if I, if I take off my hat as the chair of a non-party think tank and instead see, still speak as a conservative member of the House of Lords, a conservative politician still in a sense, I would argue for my party, we cannot grow old with a group of voters and fail to attract the younger generation. And by the younger generation, I don't simply mean 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds. I mean people in their 30s, you know, people in their people early your 40s. Age, Jeff. Yeah, uh, early forties, just <laughs> and more or less. <laughs> Jeff considers himself borderline millennial. Borderline. Oh, oh, right, yeah. right, right. So my view is that if uh, my party believes in property only democracy, we believe in opportunity. We don't want to be in a society where essentially an older generation extract money from the younger generation, the ones who are actually trying to who are working and trying to create businesses. So I think this is important for the future of the Conservative Party as, as well as the future of the country. But do, do you do you feel it would be, you know it's an uphill battle to get cross party support for some of these ideas well none of them are easy uh, but one of the roles of a think tank is to open up the issues that are genuinely difficult for democratic voters uh, and in fact i got into this first of all when i was an mp and i and in my constituency i used to go to meetings of the local residents association complaining about some new housing development 
And I knew that the, the, the political pressures to oppose every housing development, and I knew the pressures on the councillors to do the same. But equally, I got my surgery, you know, two young people turning up, and he worked for Tesco's, and she was a nurse in the NHS, and they hadn't got anywhere to live. And I found saying to the older generation who were at the Residents Association, hang on, I know you, your house was built in the 1970s. It was built on a green field. It was built at a time when we were building two hundred or 300,000 houses. Yeah, the, the generation before you didn't oppose the building of the house you now occupy. You want your kids and grandchildren to have the opportunity of owning a home as well. Surely you realise that we've got to do this for them. And actually, I found that became a winnable argument. So it is not politically impossible territory, and we've got to do it, but it's certainly difficult and controversial. That's why it's the kind of debate that think tanks should start. I mean, I'm struck by something about your career, which is that you began more or less, I mean, you began as a civil servant, but then you ran the Centre for Policy Studies. You then became an MP, a cabinet minister, and so on, and you're now running a think tank. What do you learn about the way in which ideas, because I think there are lots of good ideas in this report, go from a report of a think tank, which is incredibly important, to actually happening. In other words, if we want, if if our listeners wanted this to happen, you know, what's the path by which that might occur? Do you think? Well, that's very interesting. I I think the most a lot of these ideas are for the long term. I think the most immediate test, because it's clearly on the government's agenda, is the funding of the NHS and social care. Because these are issues that have to be resolved. And I, I, I would expect in the next 12 months we'll have proposals. And, of course, it's easy to say we want more money for the NHS. We've tried to do the difficult bit of saying, OK, how actually could you fund the kind of extras that the uh, experts say are necessary? And if people think this is how the NHS should be funded, and particularly if there are older people who are willing to make a contribution, they should say so. And they, the Chancellor, the government will be taking these type of, and Jeremy Hunt, the Health Secretary, will be taking these type of decisions in the months and years ahead. And you know, uh, as well as I do, Ed, the, the MPs will be aware of the kind of pressures they get from their constituents. Um, if there are people who are saying this is a fair way of doing it, that affects the way MPs see things. And, and ministers respond to the mood in Parliament. Um, and my encouragement, actually, the... the The example that I think shows what can be achieved is back in 2010, if you asked people, do you think more houses should be built in your area, you only got 26% of people agreeing. But the message of the housing crisis and what it was doing for the prospects of young people, I mean, now if you ask that question, you get over 50% of adults saying, yes, we need more houses in my area. And the, the shift towards the recognition that we need to build more houses, I think, is encouraging evidence that people will eventually do what is necessary for their kids to get a start in life. And is this an argument for a particular type of conservatism? I mean, I know you, aren't, this, you are not doing this in a political way, but I think it is quite striking, as Jeff sort of implied, that, you know, here you are, former Conservative cabinet minister, arguing for sort of higher taxes on wealth, you know, greater regulation of the labour market, enter zero hours contracts, more or less, um, those things. I mean, is this a, I know it's not meant as a political intervention in the Conservative Party, but does this represent a particular strand of conservatism in your view? Well, I, I mean, of course, I work for Margaret Thatcher and I'm proud to work for Margaret Thatcher. And Mar- Margaret Thatcher was also, she was not a Reaganite 
kind of borrow the money and it'll all be fine. She was a Methodist. She thought that if the government was, was spending money, it had to raise the taxes to finance it and wanted to bring down borrowing. And my view is that one of the ways in which the environment for the Conservative Party has changed is that for the last 20 or 30 years, Britain was going through the, the best bit of a baby boom. In other words, we got a big working age population and re- post-war population and relatively few pensioners and relatively few kids actually coming on behind. So you had got a very high ratio of workers to non-workers. That is now turning. As this big generation grows older, that's one of the reasons for the upward pressures on spending on health and social care. And on any forecast that you look at, just keeping the welfare state as we have it today, not any extras, involves uh, public spending rises and therefore... If you can't do it all out of borrowing, I don't huge believe pressures, in huge pressures. That's pressures. what you identify in the yeah. report. So I don't. I, it's not. I don't propose tax increases because I like increasing taxes. I'm proposing them as the minimum necessary to maintain a social contract and a welfare state of the sort that we've got today. That's the, the first point. I mean, the second point, which is wider than a point about conservatism, is part of what got me into this originally with the pinch was that in a in a. We're a society with a whole host of divisions, you know, cultural divisions, ethnic, class, religious. We're aware of all those divides. And I think sometimes politicians struggle to find a way of talking and a, about public policy that straddles those divides. But the appeal the, to parents to discharge their obligations to their children and grandchildren, I think, is quite a deep-seated natural argument that bridges most of those divides um, and it's why it's so important for me not to promote general warf- in generational warfare I'm actually trying to promote a generational exchange a generational contract and this is an area where of course life is particularly tough if you're on a low income and poor but there are middle class middle aged affluent parents in the southeast who are worrying about how their kids are going to get started on the housing ladder or what kind of jobs they're going to have. So I think this is an appeal that bridges a lot of the divides in British politics. We could call them the squeezed middle. (laughs) 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 If you might catch on. on. Now, are you going to ask the Jeff Ocracy question? Yeah, so um, in a utopian society, which I like to think of as the Jeff Ocracy with me there at the pinnacle, um, (laughs) you, you are appointed... Minister for for uh, the intergenerational, inter- yeah, intergenerational intergenerational harmony yeah, yeah harmony yeah uh, what 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 did the D I H the Department of Intergenerational <laughs> Harmony day one first morning what do you, what do you Jeff calls you in get me to sign off on well I do get you to sign I tell you first of all we've got to do something for the paradoxically for the older generation who are worried about access to healthcare and social care. So we announce that we're increasing funding for the NHS, but we say the whole country has to chip in to pay for this, and that includes the more affluent older people themselves. That's the first test case. That's a great way of bringing out the argument. And the second thing, if you'll allow me to do a second thing on, the first, on that day, is... This administration is going to hit the ground right, running, so, ground so, running. Yeah. so you definitely two, want that. Day two is, is quite simply, one of the problems is there isn't enough mixing of different generations. 
And there are some really interesting initiatives now where sometimes it's literally you have provision for early years on the same site yeah, as good. a social care and nursing home for the older generation. You make it easier for older people to come into schools just to listen to the kids read or to supervise some sports. In other words... And younger people living with older people. That's the other exactly. thing that's being experimented there are, with. Sometimes there are older people who've got a spare room. And, but I tell you that there's a kind of assumption including in the sort of social services regulation, that different generations together are somehow a threat to each other and need close and careful regulation for this to be permitted. That's why the family, paradoxically, has become more important. We're in a society where there's relatively little communication exchange between the generations, but the place where it happens is the family. And as we have fewer siblings and parents and grandparents live for longer, the family becomes a tall, thin, intergenerational family in a wide flat, generationally segregated society. So we need to break down generational segregation. And so the other thing, if I was allowed a second policy request, is to say across Whitehall, have you got regulations that assume older people are a threat to younger people, younger people are a threat to older people, that are generationally specific? Are there ways in which you can ensure that any service you are providing is accessible to people of different ages on an equal basis? I tell you, I think two brains will be a great benefit to your administration. <laughs> Let me say. David Willis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. So what did you think of that then? Well, it was nice to get out of the house. Definitely. And go to, uh, to, it was my first time in a think tank. Wow. So, so that was exciting. It's, it's also, you know. I, the, I just show you all the best. You, you do, know. you do. Um, Stick around, kiddo. <laughs> The, the report is is very exciting and and full of really good ideas. Um, I don't know how long these things take to filter through to party policy, but about twenty five years. Well, probably. that's that was my impression. You know, these think tanks produce these reports, but it's it's a slow process before they uh, end up in um, in politics. But yeah, I, I thought it was uh, a lot of ideas which if they were implemented would be reasons to be cheerful about De- definitely and i think it's really good to have a conservative um advocating this stuff um because you know it's the kind of redistribution and you know tackling issues like insecurity at work and you know generational unfairness which people might think were about the left and and i i sort of think that you know although he probably wouldn't say it it's it's reflective of david willits and maybe other conservatives having gone on a journey and sort of you know recognize that there are problems with the kind of system the particular uh, type of capitalism we have and the unfairness and inequality that there is in that so i i think it's i think it's good i think it's right to be focusing on wealth inequality of wealth as well as income inequality of wealth I think is 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 twice as bad if you look at the figures as compared to inequality of income and um and i liked his point about the parents you know about about sort of one generation you know th- this wasn't a sort of generational war because you know, it's appealing to parents about their about their kids and and as part of that generation you should tell me you know do you feel positive well i just feel positive that my generation the young people and your generation the flower power generation of the 60s uh, are, are starting to come together and talk about this we stuff. can have generational harmony yes you're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So now is the big moment. One lucky listener out of many tens <laughs> is going to get the opportunity of a lunchtime. A week. 
which is to come and be with us during our podcast. Mm. The sights, the sounds, the fireworks, the crockery throwing, all of that. <laughs> uh, we're not doing any psychological screening. Everybody who voted for us and then sent us a screenshot in the British Podcast Awards. Uh, everybody has been entered. All um, you need is a vote and a dream. That's right. So I have. And we're not going to do that thing where you did where you gave two people cars. No, no. This was one of my worst moments on radio. I was doing a competition to give away a car, and it was a kind of guess-the-number type of competition. 42. Uh, well, two callers had to guess. I don't know how many miles it was from somewhere to somewhere else. Uh, one caller said their number. The other said their number. I got the maths wrong in my head, and I said, congratulations, Ed, you've won a car. And... Ed is like, whoa, yeah, I can't believe it. This is what I wanted my whole life. I'm so excited. Meanwhile, I can hear the other caller going, excuse me, excuse me, I think I was closest. And then I'm just panicking. I'm looking around the room. The producer's panicking. Everybody's panicking. And what I should have done is said, okay, let's go to a commercial break or let's go to some music and we will we will do a recount. Instead, just in a moment of panic, I said, you can both have a car. How did they feel about that? Well, they were both delighted. The radio station who then had to find the money to buy another car, less so. So I then went to see the boss and said, look, if you want to dock my wages by uh, £100 a month forever, then oh my th- should we do that? And they and then I looked like a great guy for offering. But they didn't take no, your offering. No, no, no. But I, I came out of it looking like a great guy. Time for the Which draw. is the important bit. Right, we should probably um, probably fade up a drum roll of some some description here. Let's see if we can find one. <laughs> see if we can find a sound effect. So we've emptied a waste paper basket. We have folded. It's like the National Lottery. Which set of balls would it be? Guinevere, Lancelot. Uh, I'm shaking the waste paper. Oh, somebody's fallen out. Unfortunately, we didn't think this through, and it's a, it is a basket with holes in it. So I think give... you need to get to the punchline now. But then you've got to build up the anticipation. I think I think, Do you think it's, it's built up enough? It's sort of the reward anticipation ratio is getting out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to hold the waste paper basket over in Ed's direction. He's plunging his hand in. He's having a rummage. Right. Out comes a piece of paper. And the winner of the 2018 vote rigging competition is Victoria Duncan. Come on down. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
And here this week's pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by Flo and Joan. Hello. Hello. I'm mildly disappointed that you haven't brought a keyboard with you. It's Sorry. quite heavy. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, sometimes, you know, people don't want a song. Sometimes people <laughs> don't want to hear a song, and that's fine. So we thought we'd we do, the we do. Oh Always. no. Sorry. Can, can I ask you about the adverts? Because I, I enjoyed the adverts and found them quite charming. These were yes. for the Nationwide Building Society. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it's, it's. I think it's fair to say it's polarized people. It's like it's literally so marmite. I'm more surprised at how many people have opinions about adverts. And how much time people have to dedicate to those opinions about adverts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can give you so many suggestions of other things you can tweet about or say things Definitely. about. Or just do with your life. Yeah, just you in can general. go outside if you want. And what do you do in, uh, when you're not doing the advert? We procrastinate a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and but what's your shows? We're working at the moment for Edinburgh Fringe. What's your show, show called at Edinburgh? It's called Alive on Stage. Flo and Joan, Alive on Stage. Nice. So we've asked you to, uh, to bring along some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful yes. uh, what's, what's your first one so the first one we think that uh, customer service should be like national service or jury service and everyone for one year of their life should have to work in a customer service position maybe between the ages of 16 to 25 you get paid it's not free labor so you get minimum wage like the people in customer service usually get or whatever like being a politician you mean yeah. Yes, exactly. 100%. Uh, because we think that... obvious form of customer service. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you should have to have that time, no matter what job or what career or what interest you have, that time where you have to deal with random customers in normal, like restaurants and post office and bars and whatever. Supermarkets. Supermarkets and all of that. Um, so that you can understand how to be a good customer. How to behave. How to behave to the people that are serving you. I like that. And as someone who is working, how to treat the people that you're serving as well. Yeah. So so, something I never understand is people who are rude in in that scenario. I'm not talking about people working. I'm talking about customers. Like, I don't understand how people aren't walking around like I am, so needy to be liked. Yeah. That you're just nice to everybody that you meet. So true. And also, the people that are serving you in that situation, they're in control. So how you treat that person is very dependent on how they will, they'll presumably, hopefully be professional about it, but also they're the people handling your food and making it easier or harder to get a refund or whatever it is. I heard there was something in the restaurant industry known as Michael Winner's special sauce. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Let's leave it to the imagination. (laughs) I think it's really good. That sounds like you think the fault normally lies with customers rather than... Uh, people serving customers getting angry about things that are out of your control and having an understanding that if your meal is late or if something has gone wrong that you're not aware of something could have gone in the wrong like gone wrong in the kitchen or someone could have yeah. not but isn't it nice to be kept informed that i think the thing there is the customer needs to be kept informed yes really sorry yeah. this has happened yeah. can we get you a drink yeah very true yeah, yeah. Or like in the post office I go, it's awful. There's always a huge queue, but the queue is full of people tutting and mumbling to the yes. next person. Oh, God, how long is this going to take? There's only two people and one person's left. Oh, but if you've worked behind the counter in the post office, if previous in last year you did your jury duty and you know behind the counter it's not a nice situation to be in, yeah. you won't tut and you won't complain and you might say to the person next to you, they're having a hard day, don't do that. It's empathy. We're spreading yeah. empathy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One idea at a time. Yeah, all yeah. right, we'll have that one. That's, that's <laughs> in there. Uh, what's, what's the next one? We think that every 
child at school, it's mandatory for them all to learn a musical instrument. Or take singing lessons. Or take singing lessons, or be in a choir, or be in the school show every year. Because we think it's important that to know that you're part of a group that if you don't turn up with your tuba the tuba part does not get played and you've let your band down or if you don't turn up if you don't turn up and you are Javert in your school's edition of Les Miserables Javert's part doesn't get sung and you've let everyone else down Javert quite fundamental he's the big one all yeah. oh, right <laughs> he's, the, he's the big one i'd be quite surprised in all honesty if under 11s were doing lame is the school's edition <laughs> i mean well we did it we did not do lame is when we were 11 years old not 11 but how many years apart are you just two right two, yeah so we but we both played in school bands together yeah i think it's sometimes different with sport because sport's a bit cooler but the the same rule can apply to sports as well like if you don't turn up if you're the goalie the goals are going to go in you don't turn up that's what's going to happen um to when you're in a band, you usually ha- at some point have to perform in front of your school, and it can be quite embarrassing when you're young to do the skill to do a skill in front of your peers because you're nervous and you're vulnerable. And I think it's important during your school, whatever it is, whether you read a poem or something, each person has to have a, that mandatory skill that they carry through school. I was just doing an event recently, and I met a um, a, a, a lady who works as a part of a charity which is all about oral skills in school. Mm. So it's a form of this, isn't it? Performing, yeah. Yeah. yeah, being able to... And I think it's really important. You know, we we, we value lots of things and that that aren't so valuable and we and we underplay these kind of yeah. skills which yeah. is, and teamwork, as you say. Yeah. Did, did you never play a musical instrument? I did. Which one? I played the violin absolutely appallingly. <laughs> for how many years? <laughs> oh, for, for so painful. I mean, just to contradict <laughs> your idea. I play, so I, I was living in America for a year when I was seven and I got introduced to the Suzuki method of the violin. What's the Suzuki method? <laughs> well, all I remember was that you had to say Ohio Gozai Imas when you began, which means what? something in Japanese. Japanese. To the violin. Uh, uh, no, t- well, to the teacher, I suppose. Right. It's like namaste and yoga, right, right. I think. Yeah. Uh, my poor mother suffered for four years with me playing the violin. And when I reached the age of, <laughs> I think it was 11, I said, uh, listen, you know, I, I know the, you really want me to play the violin, and I, but I'm, you know, I don't think I'm cut out for it. It's just thank God for that. <laughs> completely right let's give it up immediately yeah okay that's a fault in the plan though because if you are really bad at the instrument well at least i tried no but i totally agree with you about this great i I, I think i I like the idea of living in your world so far thank you very much nice nice customers yeah everybody sort of performing playing playing the tuba yeah everyone plays the tuba yeah Um, um, what else do you have so this is related to our original conversation so when you write a comment on the internet, you have to enter your identification. Some kind yeah. of either your address or like a passport number or a, some kind your national insurance number or whatever it is, so that when you comment, you have culpability and you understand that you can be tracked and made accountable for the thing that you've said. So you right. can't just aimlessly and anonymously throw things into the internet. You have to confirm oh. that you're a human person that exists with the understanding that what you've said can be traced back to you. And if it is in any way uh, damaging or offensive or aggressive or whatever, you have to answer to that. You know, I think there's something in this. Yeah. 
I mean, what, why are you allowed to do it anonymously? Since we've started doing this podcast, I will quite often end up CC'd into tweets to Ed. And I can't believe some of the things people write yeah. to you. <laughs> I just horrendous. don't really read them. I sort of just yeah. gla- I just sort of glaze over them. Yeah. But it's it's like people don't understand that you're a real person on the other end of yeah. it. hundred percent. Yes. And I wonder if there's psychology in just before you're about to write your tweet to tell someone that they're a whatever mm. you have to put in the information that confirms that you are a human being or you add you put in your name this is my passport number this is my photo so you're registering first that you're a human being and then you're saying a horrible thing are you attaching your horrible thing to your person rather than throwing something out like is there psychology in entering the human information first and then writing a very non-human thing i fear twitter is becoming more and more a sort of sewer really isn't it yeah. it really is it's, it's the curious, isn't it? end of civilization on twitter <laughs> <laughs> it's horrendous yeah, i think the sort of sewer down. aspect of it is really kind of winning yeah, yeah. slightly although it's different for you but uh, and, and if you've had an advert on the telly that people have strong feelings about but I, I generally think it's it's down to who you follow and then you kind of risk creating an echo chamber mm, yeah. but um if you if you sort of only follow nice people and only interact with nice people, you you sort of can stay away from that stuff quite easily. The thing I don't think. quite get, if I'm honest, although I, I, I think it's horrible to be abused, is why people then get into a sort of big row with their abusers. Oh, don't do it. No, I learned that years ago. Because then you just sort of, I think that way lies madness. I used to get you know? obsessive about it when I was on the radio. If somebody sent something horrible to me, I'd look them up and then try and find them on Facebook, yeah. look yeah. at the house on Google Street View, <laughs> yeah. see how depressing their life yeah. was. <laughs> yeah. doesn't sound like you. Yeah. But, 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 but also like to, to try and, you know, not reason with them, but sort of take down their argument. Yeah. Because the thing is, if you do that, if you engage with them, they never, ever come back and say, oh, actually, that's a fair point, mate. They just want to get into it until you can't be bothered anymore at which point in their mind they've won so don't block yeah. those people because it gives them satisfaction yeah. mute them so that they're just shouting into into the void yeah, yeah they're shouting into the void but then it also means that it, if we say we're not reading anything then you miss the nice things of yeah. people saying watch this video of my daughter's singing your song or whatever you miss that, oh, that it's like true. the kid at school mm-hmm. that uh in a classroom of children one kid is really really misbehaving and the teacher says okay if you do that one more time everyone stays in that troll on the internet is the person that is he keeps everyone in at playtime so no one gets any fun no one gets any acknowledgement good analogy Mm. thank you that's jeff by the way (laughs) (laughs) i mean not on twitter but uh, the kid in the classroom (laughs) classroom. is that wrong jeff it is wrong yeah i was a kid who wanted to stay in the Uh, classroom at break time so didn't like going outside Uh, and mixing with the other kids (laughs) (laughs) that was me I, just, I love nothing better than indoor playtime. Yeah. <laughs> I also like wet breaks because then you could draw and, yeah. and do what you God, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm fine. I feel quite sad now. Anytime I talk about my childhood, you always get like this. I know, it wasn't sorry. that bad. <laughs> um, great. Well, there we go. We'll have that one as well. I think that's three ideas, three bankers. They're brilliant. In there. I would definitely want to live in your world. Come inside. Yeah. It's warm and fuzzy. It's yeah. Um, so if people are in London, they can see you at the Brasserie ZL. The last Friday of every month. And then you, you do stuff around the country as well. I'm yeah, guessing. around the country, put all of our stuff we online. Do. We've got uh, got a website. We've got a website. We've got an album. Our new album is coming out soon. Oh, what's it called? Soon-ish. The new album is called The Kindness of Stranglers, <laughs> which was our uh, show that we did at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, last year. Flo and Joan, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I think we've got the uh, the title for our episode. The Generation Game. Yes. And I don't know if you noticed when we were in the think tank, the Resolution Foundation, they got the bookshelves full of weighty tomes about economics and inequality and generational divides and things. But there was also, um, facing outwards on display, there was a, a Bruce Forsyth Generation Game annual. Which I hadn't made the connection to, but you had. Yeah. And it's, it's got that sort of generation game feel, this episode. Victoria Duncan's our winner. She wins the tease made, the cuddly toy. Yeah. The trip to the reasons to be cheerful. You'd be very good at that conveyor belt thing. Do you think they might bring it? Well, they did sort of toy with bringing it back. Yeah, didn't Mel and Sue? I think so. I, do, I mean, it's had a lot of hosts over the years, I think. Um, do you think you and I, maybe? Maybe. We could be the new Jim Davidson and John Virgo. Hail and Pace? Yes. Engine bracket. Lowe's Dennis and Dustin G. I, I know what you're doing here. You're trying to draw me into one of your games of yeah, word association, not. which Frazzles. is actually just listing things. Frazzles. <laughs> should we do our thank yous? We should. Uh, well, firstly, um, thanks to... Uh, I think we should thank Flo and Joan there, who were so Brilliant. Great, uh, Brilliant. Enjoyed oh, that was great. time with them. Um, and I'd like to thank David Willits um, and the Resolution Foundation for hosting us. And Emma Corsham. Produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex Feisbrice and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was designed by... Emily Power. Emily Power. Emily Power. And it's time for us to go now. He's been the borderline millennial. He's been the flower power baby boomer. And these have been... Reasons to heal the generational divide. 